this is episode number five of the School of Success podcast series with the amazing and inspiring Claire Milford Haven, co-founder of James's Place, the first non-clinical suicide crisis centre in the UK. Welcome to the School of Success podcast series. My name is Melanie Pritchard, former lawyer turned success coach and corporate wellbeing trainer. And each month, we bring you an inspiring person and message to help you discover the tools for creating happiness in the widest sense. Thank you so much, everyone, for spending some time with me today. Now, without further ado, let the class begin. Demi Lovato said, I wish people could understand that the brain is the most important organ of our body. Just because you can't see mental illness like you could see a broken bone doesn't mean it's not as detrimental or devastating to a family or an individual. We have a very special guest on today's episode, Claire Milford Haven, a British aristocrat, journalist and polo player who held the position of social editor for Tatler magazine from 1995 to the year 2000. Claire is the co-founder and a trustee of James's Place, a charity dedicated to preventing male suicide following the tragic loss of her son, James. Some of the issues that we'll be touching on include what kind of things trigger mental ill health, what type of person becomes suicidal, why men are particularly vulnerable, the signs and symptoms of mental illness, and finally, why the most vulnerable people might be the last people you would expect. We'll also be covering some top tips on how you can find support during life's lows and how to support those around you in the smallest of ways, but in those ways that can be truly life-changing. So I hope you're as excited as me about this interview with the amazing Claire Milford Haven as I am. So without further ado, let me introduce you to the one, the only, Claire Milford Haven. Claire Milford Haven here on the School of Success podcast series. Thank you so much for being with us here today, Claire. We're really excited to have you here. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm I'm very uh, happy to talk to you, Melanie. Fantastic. Thank you, Claire. So I thought it might be nice just to start with a nice, easy um, introduction into a summary of the wonderful James's place and how it came to be. So uh, to give you some background. Um, in December 2006, uh, my 21-year-old son, James, um, very tragically took his own life 10 days after a minor operation. And this, as you can imagine, um, turned our lives completely upside down. Mm. And um, we were not expecting anything like this because James had no previous mental health problems. Mm. Um, we do feel that the operation was a large part of what uh, 
what propelled him to do what he did. And there is an element which I'm yet to research, but I want to research the effects of anaesthetics, uh, anaesthetics on the brain and what it does to mm. people. But that's, that's a, a big piece of work that I hope we'll be able to do at some point. Mm. However, um, 18 months after James's death, we set up um, a charity in his name, a fund. And it was really for the, for the purpose of preventing other families going through what we were going through uh, to, to find out more about suicide and, and about the research in suicide and, and to do our level best to prevent suicide happening and other families going through what we were going through. So um, we set up a fund and launched it in May 2008. And so for quite a few years, I was learning about this world. I was learning about mental health. I was mm. um, learning about suicide prevention. I was meeting other families who had been through what we were going through, uh, which actually was, was lovely because um, I felt very supported by that. And mm -hmm. I think likewise, there are quite a few of us who uh, refer to it as a club that nobody wants to join, which yeah. it is. And um, but there was a there was a real sense of solidarity with the other families and parents that I met. So that's been lovely. Um, and we set about we we raised money and then we set about funding other charities who were uh, which were working in the in the area that um, we wished to to get involved in. So. Obviously, it was it was all very relevant to James. Um, so he was a student. So we were funding student projects mm -hmm. and Nightline, which is a student helpline, and research into suicide and the causes of suicide. Although that is very very complex, um, mm. and we were doing a lot of work. We were lobbying government, and I am I'm on a government advisory board. It's it's the uh, National Suicide Prevention Strategy Advisory Group, mm. uh, which is run by the Department of Health. So I was getting more and more involved in this area. But all the time, I kept reflecting on um, what had happened to James and his experience <clears throat> um, when he felt suicidal and the fact that he couldn't actually find the help that he needed. Yeah. Um, he went looking for it. And I strongly believe he didn't actually want to die uh, because he went looking for help. Mm. Um, but he couldn't find the help he wanted. And um, very sadly, and also <laughs> the, the various uh, different medical people that he saw, so the, the GP surgery and the uh, walk-in centre that he went to and A&E, nobody contacted me. So I very much felt that there was... A sort of niche a gap in the market here so, something yeah. that we, we should do about this and because men are three times more likely to take their own lives mm -hmm. i i felt that we should create something that was very specific to men yeah and it's interesting because a few people have said to me well you know but what about women and i said i'm not i'm not saying that women don't take their own lives Mm -hmm. But men are the highest risk category. All men of all ages Absolutely. are the highest risk category. And if we don't create something that is for men, they won't access it. So I feel 
there was a very strong reason for for, for making it all male. Um, Absolutely. So we set about. I set. I had this vision in my mind of what um, what the centre would look like, a place where men could go and and talk when they were feeling suicidal. Um, the, the criteria is very much that they aren't sort of just depressed; they are actually actively feeling suicidal. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to create an environment that was warm and nurturing, and valued and respected the men that come into through our doors. Mm. Um, you know, one has to remember that for a man to do this, it is very courageous uh, for a man to actually admit that he's got a serious problem. And for him to take that step to, to contact James's place and walk through the door is a big thing. So um, it was very key that the environment was right for them. And we did do a focus group of men talking about almost literally talking about paint colours and uh, the garden and everything. So we, we wanted to get it very male specific. Yeah. Um, so I had this vision and it was about making that vision happen. Mm-hmm. And obviously, to make anything like this happen, you need funds. Mm-hmm. So, um, my son Harry, who it was three years younger than James, decided, um, much against my will, I will add, <laughs> uh, but decided to grow, row across the Atlantic uh, <laughs> in a in a in a race um, with three of his friends. And I really didn't want him to do this for obvious reasons, yes. but um, <laughs> it's hard to. It's hard to argue with uh, your your son who's six foot seven. So wow. <laughs> I eventually gave them all my blessing and off they went. And 39 days later, they arrived in Antigua and they had raised over £650,000, which was incredible. Gosh. Broke all the records uh, for that particular race. And um, it meant that we could we could actually start in earnest and open... Um, our James's place and and um and that's what we did oh fabulous gosh thank you for such a comprehensive summary Claire and hats off to Harry for achieving such an incredible feat and raising so much money that's very very inspiring um so Claire in terms of James's place um I love the fact that James's name is in the title actually it, it feels really personal and it kind of adds a warmth um am I right in thinking that it, it started off um in Liverpool and you've now sort of developed a similar centre in London is that right yeah, more or less, yes. So we started in Liverpool, and lots of people say, why Liverpool? Mm-hmm. Um, because we don't have any, you know, connections there. I'm not from Liverpool. Yep. But we had a lot of interest and engagement from Liverpool. And when I went up there for the first time, um, I was sort of overwhelmed at how uh, enthusiastic everyone was. Yes. And then I realised that that's just the way people are in Liverpool. Yes. <laughs> but they are the friendliest uh, community of, of people I've ever met in my life. So mm-hmm. um, I just felt very welcomed. I felt that my vision could genuinely become a reality up there. Yeah. And also they have four u- universities. So I, that was very important to me that we had a student population. Um, and also we were working alongside Mersey Care, which is their NHS trust up there. And that's how I wanted to work. I wanted to work alongside an NHS trust, but be independent. Mm-hmm. So we have very good relations uh, with Mersey Care. So yes, we set that up in uh, 2018, June 2018, we launched. 
we were very fortunate, we're going to name drop now, but we were very fortunate to have um, the Duke of Cambridge opening our doors, which was um, incredibly kind of him. And um, and actually, I, I would like to say that I think uh, he and the Duchess of Cambridge have been incredible with their raising awareness about mental health and suicide prevention, and also uh, Prince Harry, actually. I think they've all been amazingly uh, upfront and um, normal about it. And I think that has given a lot of people sort of permission to feel comfortable about talking about their issues. Absolutely, I completely agree with so, you. Really impressive. So, so we're jolly lucky to have um, him come and open it. And then we, um, yeah, we've been we've been there for over two years now, and we have helped over four hundred men, wow. um, which is amazing. And it's uh, the testimonies that we've had from the guys are, well, make make me cry actually. But I can but, imagine. Yeah, it's it's fabulous. So so that 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 sort of our was our kind of flagship, shall we say. Mm -hmm. We found a wonderful uh, property in Liverpool and converted it, and it is, it's really special. Um, so, yes, uh, we, want to, we want to spread our wings, and we always wanted to be in London. Mm -hmm. um, and so, similar kind of format, we want to, we want to work um, with an NHS trust, and um, again, we found um, East London, uh, East London Foundation Trust very, very enthusiastic about our vision and very keen to work with us. So, um, yes, we're going to open in London next year. Fantastic. And we will be, well, it's, I can't really say quite about the location, but mm -hmm. it will be in, in the city or nearby the city of London. So, brilliant. Um, yeah fantastic we've already started virtually there we've, we've got an online service already set up which we set up during uh, the first lockdown um <clears throat> but um we want to actually start our face-to-face -face consultations as soon as we have acquired a, a, an appropriate building sounds fabulous claire um i mean such make a different stuff it's i can i can understand why it would make you cry reading testimonials and i actually read a couple on james's place and they were very, very heartwarming. One chap mm. said, um, the warmth you feel when you walk through the door, the people in there are amazing. They rebuilt me. Mm. And another another guy said, I might not be talking to you now. So that's the sort of impact it's had. Mm. It, mean, it is very, um, it's very powerful. And when you read those and listen to the testimonies and, you know, you can imagine you've got some very tough, scousers up there yeah. who would find it hard to to come in and they have just embraced it and they mm -hmm. tell their friends and if their mates are in trouble they definitely suggest they come along so we've got brilliant yeah so so um we the the the, the testimonies that we've had show that the guys who come in are really, really moved by by coming into James's place, and they they definitely recommend it to their mates. Brilliant. And and as I said earlier, it's a big, big thing for them to make make mm. that telephone call, for them to walk through the door, 
and to engage in our therapy. So, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And we get people from all different walks of life, all different ages, mm -hmm. but probably the biggest cohort, um, of, there are two different age groups that seem to be um, the biggest uh, cohorts are the sort of 19 to 25, so the student, or the student age group, and then yeah. men in their 40s. Yeah, interesting. Yeah. That's um, powerful. Um, so in terms of the support that you provide, Claire, um, you, pr you have trained therapists on site, um, and you very much emphasize this as a sort of non-clinical setting, so it's very kind of warm and approachable. Is, is that kind of a USP of, of what you're providing there? Yeah, 100%. So we we like to, I mean, our, our, our environment is non-clinical, so everything mm -hmm. is like walking to somebody's house. Mm -hmm. um, it's really comfortable and it's light. And a lot of people say when they walk in and they can see this, you can go sort of see the garden through the French French windows and it just gives back hope. You know, if you've lost lost hope, it gives you just a little bit of hope, I think, coming Absolutely. into that environment. Um, but the service that we provide is manned by clinicians. So we're, yeah. we're non, I mean, I don't want non-clinical to be misleading. Mm. We're non-clinical in appearance, but the therapy is delivered by uh, trained clinicians. Yeah, Absolutely. Um, and I saw on your website, um, I don't know if it's the still, case, still the case, but there's a lovely picture of James above the um, sort of mantelpiece when you walked in. And I thought yes. that it just gives it a really personal touch, almost like, you know, he's like a guardian angel watching down. Um, and I can imagine that if I was a, you know, as you say, it takes enormous bravery for a, for a bloke to walk in and open up. It's hard enough anyway for men. But if I walked in and saw a picture of, you know, the kind of beautiful, warm James, um, it's just immediately comforting and incredibly destigmatizing to see such a kind of handsome, smiley um, young man who exudes happiness sort of looking down on you really yeah well thank you and and I think that's very that that's very true actually and and actually what you've just said is very um is really the problem with suicide it's because mm. it can happen to anyone yeah and and James was a very happy smiley warm funny I mean so funny yeah uh, person and he was just the last person in the world I thought would do what he did. Mm -hmm. And this seems to be a bit of a trend with this issue. A lot of people, you know, I often hear people say, life is all of the party, mm. you know, warmth, funny, joker. And I, you know, and then you start thinking, well, was it a mask or was it? But I knew James by the back of my hand. I mean, I had him when I was 24. So, we kind of grew up together and I knew him well and I would know if he was masking something. Yeah. So there was a tipping point for him and the tipping point was this operation and there are always other factors too. It's never one specific, specific thing. I think a lot of people say, oh, why did they do that? Mm. You know, what was it? Yeah. And it's never one thing. It, it's, often, it's often when a number of things collide to produce this situation where the person who's in that situation feels they have no other option but to 
to go. Absolutely. So it's, um, yeah, it's I, not a good... Uh, I think it's really important what you said there, Claire, because I think suicide's a horrible word and it sounds terribly black and white, um, doesn't it? So people can make black and white assumptions, but as you say, it's incredibly complex and there are all sorts of triggers. You know, one person may have been struggling for years and years with a really serious, you know, mental health illness, but for somebody else, like James, it might come completely out of the blue and there may be no apparent signs. Um, so I'm really glad that you make that very, very important point. Um, and you mentioned, Claire, that Obviously, you get a lot of different kinds of personalities coming in. What sort of triggers like, are you aware of that, that tip men into this space? Um, because as you say, it's not just sort of one size fits all. No, I think you won't be surprised to hear that relationship issues mm. is the biggest tipping point. Mm. So that is very high up on our list because mm -hmm. um, we've done some, we, we've produced an evaluation of our service. And, and so all of these trigger points are, are in the data and so relationship issues uh, debt issues family problems mm. uh, sexuality uh, divorce death you know yeah. all the things that affect us affect every individual um, they're all in there but relationship problems um, is is right up there mm. as one of the, the, the biggest tipping points and and I think, you know, a lot of guys, well, I think actually it's not a lot of guys. I think most men have two, two main driving points. Mm -hmm. One is pride and one is shame. Mm. And those two, um, those two elements don't exist in the same way with women. Perhaps shame exists with women. Mm. I think women can feel shame. Women don't have that uh, that issue with pride, and I think pride, you know, pride before a fall. I think pride is a very male, it's a very male thing, and mm. I think that when men are, I believe that when men are in trouble, um, they find it very hard to share the share the problems, mm -hmm. and so they will adopt unhelpful unhelpful coping strategies such as drinking gambling you can imagine you know all mm. the things that, that uh, they think will help them get through but actually they're very um, negative coping strategies absolutely i'm not sure i've question i think i've gone off on no no that was helpful <laughs> you went through some really good examples of what can trigger all the different triggers for potentially you know triggering someone into suicidal crisis um and i think that's a very important point you raise claire because you know, stats make a big deal about how women are much more vulnerable to depression and anxiety. Um, however, as you say, that, that sort of relies on sharing and opening up to get that diagnosis. And, you know, stats also show that men self-medicate a lot more, I mean, significantly more than women. So, as you say, there's a real need for bridging this gap in the market to give men a place where they can feel safe enough to share and open up. Yeah. So important very important i think women women we, we like to share we have uh, quite strong friend groups um and mm. i think men are a bit different yes. in that respect i think they don't like to share in the same way absolutely i think men tend to sort of say we'll come down the pub and you know have a few pints and pat on the back and it will be better but yeah it's not you know you need to you need to go and offload and you need to share it with somebody who can really help you and can can give you those 
those coping strategies that are helpful as opposed to unhelpful. Absolutely. Um, and I really like the point you made earlier when you said, you know, James reached out for help. And as you say, that really reflects the fact that he didn't want to die. And I think that's that's the irony. People hear the word suicide and they assume, oh, they wanted to die. Um, my sister and I were speaking to a, a new friend recently and sadly she shared that her sister sadly took her life and she'd had um, untreated bipolar for a number of years. And my sister said, well, I guess there was nothing that could have been done. You know, she, she wanted to die. And I thought that was an interesting assumption because um, often, as you say, it is just the build up of unshared stress. And that sharing can be the difference between um, life and death, can't it? Yes, and I think I think it's very important to point out that that suicide is not inevitable. Mm. Uh, it, it really isn't inevitable. It is preventable. And you know, through through our centre, for instance, you know, we are showing that it is preventable, and through lots of other services that are available. Uh, in up and down the country, you know, lots of different charities are doing their level best to prevent. And it, it really isn't inevitable if you are willing to go and seek help and you're willing to engage in that help. And, and there is help out there. Um, so I think that, um, as you said, as your, your sister said, well, you know, about, about this uh, person who was bipolar, um, imply that it was an, an, an inevitable outcome, but I don't believe that. Yeah. I, I think everything. I think suicide is totally preventable with the right uh, with the right service in place. I completely agree with you. Um, there are lots of myths, actually, aren't, aren't there? Like if you talk about ask someone if they're feeling suicidal, there's this sort of assumption sometimes that you'll talk someone into suicide, when obviously the reverse is often very true. Have you discovered anything else, Claire? Um, since what you've been through, that sort of really um, changed your perception of of the subject? Had you kind of encountered much about mental illness or suicide before, you know, your personal experience? Um, just to go back to what you said if, about talking about it, putting the idea into somebody's head. Mm. I mean, that has been completely turned on its head because, in fact, we were involved in some research that was done by um, uh, down at Exeter University and we basically helped produce a leaflet that said it's okay to talk about suicide. And the interesting thing is that you don't put it, if you ask the direct question, mm. you know, do you feel suicidal, rather than saying you're not going to do something stupid, are you? If you ask the direct mm. question, the person who feels suicidal will actually be relieved that you've, <laughs> you've realised that they're in such a bad place. If you try and skirt around it, mm -hmm. you know, and, and you, you don't ask that direct question, you'll probably get um, the answer that you'd rather hear, which is, no, 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 I'm fine. Mm -hmm. But actually, you need to ask that question. And so it, it, the thought is already in their head. You're not putting it into their head. But actually, what you're doing is is you're, you're reassuring them that you're there and you understand and you can sense something. So very important to ask the question. If you if you sense that someone who you are close to uh, feels suicidal and, and you've got that sort of gut instinct, mm. ask the question and and help them. And then if, if they really do feel actively suicidal, seek help immediately. Yeah. I really feel there's a, a real urgency about it, um, yeah. which is why we see people within 36 hours of them calling. Brilliant. Um, Sorry, you asked me something else. Um, 
what else have I learned about mental health? Yeah, is there anything that, that surprised you having, you know, obviously you've done a lot of research into it, you know, you've become something of an expert on it. Is there anything that surprised you that you really hadn't realised before, that, yeah, before this happened to you, really? Well, I guess I was quite surprised that one in four of us will have a mental health issue during our lifetime. Yeah. Um, I was surprised by that, but now I'm not surprised because um, we're, we're all vulnerable to it, all of us. Mm-hmm. And, you know... I've obviously had my own struggles since James died and, and, and I have a huge fear of loss. Um, so that is something that I have to manage on a, a regular basis. Mm-hmm. Um, but there are plenty of people out there who try and hide it. Um, but, you know, it's really important, I think, to listen. You know, I think mm. too often people don't listen. They, they pretend they're listening, mm-hmm. but they're not really listening. They're just waiting to, to talk about what they want to talk about. And I think mm. if we listened a bit more and we really did ask people how they are and, and, and genuinely sort of were engaged in that rather than it just being a, a, as a manner of speech, you know, how are you? I'm fine. Mm-hmm. Are you really fine? Mm-hmm. Well, actually, no, I'm not fine. I, 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 I don't feel good today. You know, and it, why don't you feel good? And engage in that and everybody has i believe a responsibility to to be there for their for their for well for anyone actually absolutely their friends their loved ones their neighbors and even people they don't know i mean I've, i remember one night seeing a, a a woman and i think this was before james died and i saw a woman a young woman crying on the steps of a quite late at night she was crying on the steps of a bank in London and I said to my husband we need to stop the car I I, I, I really I can't watch I can't look at her I you know she's crying and she's in distress mm. and he said no 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 come on drive. and I said no we need to stop the car and I just got out and I just put my arms around her and I said you know is there anything I can do to help can I take you anywhere can we take you are you okay and she she'd obviously had a, a bust up with her boyfriend and I just stayed there for five minutes and she said, no, I'm fine. I'll be fine. I'm going to, I'm going to go home. But I just think when you see someone who's in distress, just, just go and talk to them. Yeah. Don't, don't, don't be scared of it. Don't feel it's not your business. Um, because it could make all the difference. Absolutely. Claire, that's really powerful. It really could, it could change a life. And I think, um, I don't know about you, Claire, but I find a lot of, a lot of people are very scared of saying the wrong thing or getting it wrong. But something I've learned is um, actually just being genuine. And as you say, just caring is the most important thing because people can feel it when you care. Yeah, they really can. Of course they can. And it's, I think, you know, we all have a responsibility to uh, our fellow men to, to make sure they're okay. And I'm quite, maybe my sort of perception has uh, has increased since James died. My my gut instinct certainly has, but um, I can normally tell when someone's not not hundred percent. Yeah, and, uh, absolutely. And it's interesting you said that you feel that that's sort of become heightened since um, you lost James. Um, I've certainly met people who have had training um, and learnt about the area, much like you. Who and one one girl actually described it as developing a bit of a sixth sense. Um, yes. learning how to spot the signs and symptoms 
um, that, as you say, it's very common to hear phrases like there were no signs and sometimes there aren't. And, you know, people cannot feel guilty for that because, as you say, people can wear masks. But sometimes, yeah, sometimes you can um, learn how to spot the signs and symptoms. Um, and, and it's amazing what you can sense from that. Do you have any advice, Claire? Obviously, as you said, which was incredibly helpful, actually, you know, James was a very, you know, happy-go-lucky guy, life and soul of the party, very sporty, good-looking, almost like the poster boy for happiness, um, ironically. In terms of, like, signs and symptoms of suicidal crisis, are there any sort of tips that you could give people that you've kind of come across through through James's place, if we're generalising? Um, I think I can only really speak of my experience with James and um, when I reflect back on to his last few days and he wasn't himself, mm. you know, he really wasn't himself at all. Mm -hmm. um, but I didn't realise uh, that he felt suicidal, but he just wasn't himself. He was behaving strangely and there was something he said to me um, the day that he the day that he died, which really it, it was really strange. So he he had a shower and he came out of the shower and he was standing in my he was standing in in, in my bathroom uh, in a towel and he said, "Mum, do I look different?" Mm -hmm. And I said, "No. What do you mean? Do I look? Do you look different?" And he said. Do I look different? And I said, no, 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 darling, you look the same. You look great. I said, come on, come on, chop, chop. We've got to, we, you know, we've got to get going. We were, we were on our way somewhere. I said, come on, but you look great. You look wonderful. You always look great. Like that, those words mm. send a chill through me now. I bet. Because they sent a bit of a chill through me then. Mm -hmm. But, and that was probably my cue to say something to ask the question to say james what are you what are you saying to me mm. do you feel suicidal but i i didn't it wasn't something i knew about i had no knowledge of suicidal ideation i had and also as a mum you don't want to go there yeah of course you don't want to think you don't of course you don't want to go there so when he said that I just was, when I reflect on it, it's it's almost like he'd made his mind up mm. and it's almost like something had taken him or possessed him. It's really scary. It's really sinister. Mm. And um, I think, so, you know, I obviously missed a trick, sadly, but um, I didn't know. And so my advice to anyone who gets any sense that something really odd is going on, mm -hmm. ask the question and mm. stay with that person. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that conversation, that sharing can can change lives, can't it? I mean, I saw a quite a powerful sentence from I think one of your counsellors called Dan, who said, um, you can do meaningful work in a brief period. And I think it, it's such a good point you make that just listening and kind of holding space for someone and just picking up on something, no matter how small, any sort of shift that you sense in someone's norms, no matter how subtle, it really can be a cry for help, can't it? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. really important point. Um, well, thank you, Claire. That was incredibly um, insightful. It'd be nice to end um, with a more general question, really, um, which I always like to ask um, podcast guests. 
If you had to say what success means to you um, in the widest sense in life, what would you what would you come up with? Um, well, it's interesting, isn't it? Because everyone measures success in their own personal way. And, and I guess when we think of success, we think of achievements and we think of sort of achievements uh, probably through work or through, yes, more through work perhaps, but I, I, I think of success uh, more in a more sort of uh, human way perhaps. I think of success as being uh, a good mum, mm. as being a good friend, as being loyal, as being a good wife, as being a good colleague, as being there for people and actually valuing those those relationships and friendships because at the end of the day that's really what we have mm. um, that's all we have is is I mean our health is is also very important so I'm not going to take away from that but you know the most important thing I've obviously realized um, is my family and my kids and people who <coughs> sorry <laughs> don't worry People who were there for me and dropped everything for me and my family. Absolutely. You know, we had people bringing food around, and I can't really remember, to be honest, but mm. I was so supported, and that's that's success. Absolutely. <laughs> success is 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 being kind. Is being being there for people, being loyal. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that for me is success. That's so lovely to be reminded of that in a society where we can get swept up in sometimes, you know, the wrong things, as it were. People never forget how you made them feel, do they? And it sounds like you've got some very special people around you. And that you're yeah. a very special person too, Claire, I have no doubt. Obviously, I didn't know James, but what a success you've made of, frankly, an incredible trauma. It's um, deeply inspiring, the work that you do and the way that you touch people's lives and change people's lives. I mean, there isn't a greater way of making a difference, really, than what what James's place is doing. It's incredible. Well, it's a, it's, it's a wonderful legacy to James, really. I mean, James is not with us anymore, but his, his name and his legacy live on and... He would wholly endorse what we're doing. He would be thrilled about what we're doing. Mm. Um, my other children are, well, Harry's involved. He's a trustee of the charity, but my daughter is, you know, very sort of involved in the background. And I think that at the end of the day, you know, when something when you lose a child or something really traumatic happens to you, um, you have a choice. You, know, you have a choice as to how you're going to respond to this. And um, and as a family, we chose to respond in the way that we've responded. And it was, at the time, I remember thinking, do I really want to think about this subject every day of my life? Yeah. Um, and I was a little bit, hesitant to start with and now 
hundred percent it was the right thing because we are helping to change other people's lives mm. for the better. And you know, we're providing three sorry, free therapy uh, to men who are considering ending it all. So that to me actually that's success. It really is. If that's not success, I don't know what is what is. <laughs> I think if we can save lives that's success, yeah. Absolutely. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you, Claire. Thank you so much for sharing everything that you have. It's such an important subject. Um, and obviously things have moved forward to some extent, but there's still work to be done. And I'm so grateful that you've opened up and given us a really good snapshot into something that is still, to some extent, misunderstood. So thank you so much. Well, thank you very much for giving me the opportunity and for giving James's Place the opportunity to chat to you. And I, I would just like to to just say one thing, one other thing that um, I would like to sort of give give huge credit to the team at James's Place. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are fantastic. And, you know, they're doing the day-to-day work, talking to the guys who are feeling suicidal. And um, I, I'm just the person behind it, but, um, you know, they're at the coalface. So I really want to take my hat off to... Um, to Ellen and Jane and all the team at James's Place who do uh, the most incredible work. Fantastic. Thank you, Claire. Um, you sound like a great figurehead. Um, well, thank you again, Claire. We've loved having you here and um, we wish you the very best for the future. Thank you. And mm. you too, Melanie. Lovely to you today. Thanks, Claire. And we'll speak soon, hopefully. I hope so. Take care.